Hi, welcome to the Monster Television Podcast. I'm Nick Campbell. I'm Matt Owens. We have Noel Kirkpatrick. Hello. Karen Petruska. Hello. And uh, let's uh, let's talk about some television, huh? Um, so let's. We always seem to talk about the Sunday shows first. Walking Dead. Uh, some big news that's been coming out lately is the uh, the big writer shakeup. Um, how do you guys feel about that? Well, does someone want to first give background on it? What the heck happened? Do we even really know? I mean, sure, initially, initially, the first thing that came out was all the writers were fired. Darabont's cleaning house. He's starting over, freelancing for season two. That was what we. That was the only info we had for. Almost. So like is that Deadline so? Hollywood? Is that where it came from? Yeah. Yeah, it's not a Finks website. And then afterwards, was it all just people trying to guess what was happening, or was there anything official? Well, uh, the executive producer uh, Ann Heard sat down with an interview with EW and talked about how it's not like a writer shakeup that a lot of the writers had projects that were already kind of in the works because this is only a six episode season, so it was just kind of playing for the end just in case they didn't get picked up for a second season, and um, so they haven't even mapped out the second season yet. They'd start that in January, and then the show doesn't even come back until October. So what essentially she said was it's not like they fired all the writers. It's just that the writers have other stuff going on during this giant hiatus. But where'd the talk about them hiring freelancers instead of a writing staff come from? That, that, same, was... that same initial report from Nikki Fink. Yeah. It said and did the executive producer comment on that? No, that's all she said um, was the, the thing about how all the, all the writers have different projects going on. That it wasn't that they were all fired. That It was just that they were uh, they just have other things going on. Kirkman mentioned something as well. He was actually the first one that they put forward to talk about it instead of Van Hurd, which I thought was weird. And it sounded like he didn't quite know what was going on either. But I think he also mentioned the freelancing as well. So I'm not quite, I don't think anyone's really quite sure what's going on except for the fact that Charles... Egley was definitely out. That's the number two? Yeah. yeah. He was supposed to take over the show in season two, actually. Oh, poor guy. But Darabont decided he wanted to stay on and keep running the show, so Egley left. <laughs> oh, okay. So he was probably upset about that. Okay, that makes sense. And I would imagine that Egley, based on all this stuff that's coming out, that Egley was probably the one that may have told Nikki Fink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of makes sense. It definitely makes sense. But anyway, are you guys uh, mad? I hear you were upset about this. Oh, I'm so angry. I mean, <laughs> for, like one, for one, to fire your entire writing staff. So they've sort of backtracked. And, you know, with this latest interview about what's going on, which still came out so much later that I'm still iffy on if this is even really the truth. But the whole idea of hiring a bunch of freelancers to do the second season is such a weird way to write a show. So if Darabont's going to stay on and he's going to map out the entirety of season two, essentially by himself, it seems, and hire a bunch of freelancers to come in and write the episodes, that does not feel like a good writing style to me. I don't get how that's going to work. There's going to be no cohesion. We have precedent? Well, we have not, not so much in America, but, I mean, the British model follows the freelance methodology pretty closely. Right, I think um, that, they even they name checked Torchwood in some of the initial reports that he wanted to give a try to how Torchwood does its seasons. Is going to start. To, well, I mean, Torchwood always did freelancing, but now that they're being co-produced here in the states, they're still following that. They had to work out something with the Writers Guild, of course. But I mean, like Doctor Who's like the example that I would point to, where you have a main showrunner who maps out the thirteen episode season and then just 
hires people to write episodes. Like next season, Neil Gaiman's writing an episode. The guy's not a staff writer for anyone, but he's writing an episode of Doctor Who. And then in the previous season, other various big British writers have all chimed in with the Doctor Who episode. But these episodes were also all coherent because they had one guy leading the charge, basically, which was Stephen Moffat. But isn't so, Doctor Who more of a procedural kind of show than The Walking Dead is? Um, it has larger serial arcs to it that became popular recently with um with when the series rebooted in the earlier part of this decade yeah. under Russell T Davies. I mean, everything would be episodic, but there's still those serial threads that run through each of the episodes. Okay, and see that makes sense, but still, like Walking Dead is not episodic, right? And so it seems more likely that that kind of a structure would work for Doctor Who, even with, you know, its, its serial tie-ins and stuff, but I just can't see it working for such a serialized show as Walking Dead. I'm nervous. It scares me. So I think um, one of the, the connections I try to make here is that we, with, with the rise of premium and basic cable, um, their, their, their quality TV, they, a lot of it seems to center around the concept of the auteur, which, of course, comes out of film, and Darabont comes out of film. So you have this idea that there's one person whose mark is on the entire series. And that when we... The cult of the auteur becomes dangerous because we forget that, especially with television and with most art forms, it's a group of people putting something together. Uh-huh. So my concern here, even though we don't know enough to really kind of freak out yet, is that any time I feel like individual writers are at all diminished because of the, the, the status of one, um, I feel like it's sort of a lie. Like, you're, just, you're, you're assuming that one person alone is the, responsible for the, the achievements of the series, when in fact an awful lot of people have had to contribute their ideas and their voices. So to put all of your eggs in the one writer basket, um, it, 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 it makes me feel badly for writers who already seem to suffer quite a lot in the entertainment industry. Yeah. Right. And I think the other thing that, I mean, that's kind of getting missed in all this is that this even if Darabont is still the head guy on this and intends to write many of the episodes, this isn't still isn't really new for American television either. I mean, when you have David E. Kelly, Aaron Sorkin, and Matthew Weiner basically having a writer's room just to bounce ideas off of and give occasional credit to other writers, I don't under, quite understand why we're that upset about Darabont, but yet we don't really get upset about David E. Kelly, Aaron Sorkin, or Matthew Weiner most recently with Mad Men, who kind of don't use their don't seem to use their writers room or don't seem all that pleased about sharing credit with their writers. I don't know that people aren't upset with Matthew Weiner. I think that <laughs> I think people are pretty aware of, of some of the, the challenges with him. Um, but yeah, I think that the part of the reason this is having such outrage is because there seems to be an awful lot of hubris to just fire everyone. I mean, I th- the news story is provocative. The way it was reported as insider knowledge is provocative. So there's certainly things that are contributing to all of this. And maybe they wanted that. Maybe they liked, you know, this is, you know, they have to create an awful lot of buzz in the next year <laughs> until we get another season. So little bits like this coming out, maybe, you know, keep it in the press. But like um, a giant hiatus, October until the next Walking Dead season? Yes. Yeah. massive. And you know, we're also going to have to see what happens here. You know, they're going to start talking about it in January, but they have an awful lot they have to achieve within a, a limited amount of time. 
Um, and maybe the idea of working with freelancers makes them feel like they can dole out scripts and actually be more efficient. Like, I do wonder if some of it is that they have pressure to get things done in a certain way, and this is a way to kind of achieve that. But I also read somewhere that there's an idea out there that they're going for superstar freelancers. Like, they're going to have guest writers and actually kind of even amp up this idea of the auteur even more, have, like, really special people come in and, and try and contribute. So... Right, um, I predicted the Stephen King penned episode when they first announced this, just because that made sense, given his yeah. connection to Arabonk. Yeah, so that's kind of a fascinating notion right there. But still, like I said, I, I uh, there's going to be an awful lot of people contributing to these scripts, and I'm concerned that, that what this largely is is a move to not acknowledge that. Do you think there's any any issue at all here with saving money? Do we know anything about how writers are paid? Do you make less as a freelancer if you're on staff? Do, is this like the typical kind of thing you'd have in the regular world where if you're on staff, you have medical benefits? If you're not on staff, you just have one-offs, they give you some money, and you try to you know, get the rest of the things that people fully employed have elsewhere. Yes, that it would save you money to, to hire freelancers because... The, not if your freelancer is Stephen King. Well, no, but I mean, if you get rid of a writer's room, you get rid of the entire structure from... You know, writer assistants all the way through story editors and stuff like that. You you end up saving a lot of money by you know, hiring individual script writers and stuff like that. I I, I would assume, and yet yeah, you don't have to pay benefits and stuff like that though, because um, I mean, especially if they're scabs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. So um, yeah, you would. You, I guess you would save a lot of money on on that. But I don't think that. I mean, it doesn't seem. I mean, I guess with all the makeup and effects and stuff like that, but it's cheap to shoot in Atlanta. Yeah, and it's um, I don't, especially uh, if you use, use the Cobb Energy Center as the <laughs> CC. Exactly right. Um, Are they going to shoot here again? Do we know anything about that? I hope so, but I haven't heard anything. I imagine they don't know yet. Okay, they, so there's still an awful lot we don't know, but I, I think it's a story to watch. I'll be curious to see if interest in it continues once the whole kind of shock of the moment dissipates. Like, well, we keep being concerned about what's actually happening with writers <laughs> when the story's no longer fresh. So, guys, let's keep being concerned about writers. Let's let's follow this one. Yes, let's. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I was like, how do you guys feel about the episode from this week? Uh, with the, uh, the big open door gate uh, uh, in the weird CDC building. Like, what? did you guys know that the CDC was in the middle of an office park somewhere? That was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, it looked underground to me. It looked like there was a building, but that actually wasn't where... Like, he was actually residing beneath it, the right. way it looked. Right. The four Atlanta natives are picking on their geographic inaccuracies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I did hear... Somebody commented on the blog that, uh, that it was in Bankhead. The quarry is, is in Bankhead, which is so, like... Because uh, yeah. I, I assume it was closer to Cumberland, but um, it's a, just a little further south than Cumberland. Which kind of makes sense, I guess. But, um, yes, there, there are several geographic inaccuracies that make me upset every week. I'm, yeah, I'm not from here, so it doesn't bother me at all. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my, my big deal with The Walking Dead isn't just about a city being gripped by a zombie apocalypse. It's about the city of Atlanta being gripped by, so, so, by a zombie apocalypse and what <laughs> the city of Atlanta would do. And it does. It feels very different because, you know, that's hometown for us. Exactly. So, so yeah. Um, I was okay with the episode. The uh, the whole uh, at the end of the episode, the door opens, light pours out. That kind of thing was a little cheesy to me, but you know, whatever. It's uh. Should we go back to Lost again? <laughs> Can we please? 
Just saying. <laughs> the light comes on. John Locke sits above, saying, begging for it to open. Right. Yeah. You're killing us! I think that the... the I don't know. I, I guess I'm worried that the ending did not hit for me emotionally the way I needed it to. That this man was kind of at a breaking point. That a group of people were at a breaking point. And that's what this episode should have been. This should have been like the really low point. Like the act, you know, 2.5 or 3 in a film where everything kind of falls apart. Our hero seems to be out. And then, you know, luckily we get the second win and we get through to the exciting conclusion. And I, you know, I got with the dying sister. That was awesome. That- that was yeah, that, that was beautifully done. But again, I needed her to force the others into her moment of grief also. You know, she, hers, it was very internal. Right. And I needed to see all of these people kind of fall apart. I needed to see all of their ties be threatened. I really needed to see a crisis here for this season, you know, to have the typical rise and then, you know, denouement that I, I look for. And even though our hero kind of freaked out at the end, it didn't feel like everyone was with him. It well, didn't feel like all hope was lost. Do you know what I mean? I totally agree. Like, I feel like all the elements were supposed to be there, like you know, leaving Jim on the side of the road and that kind of thing. Like, oh, there's yeah. all kinds of little points where it should. We should feel like that low point where we should feel if like I cared at all about Jim. Who the heck is Jim? I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I you know I like Jim. I wish that Jim could have stayed around for that fifth and a half sense that he has. Like you know he you know had that dream about digging the grave and stuff like that. I wish that there was that kind of intuitive character on in the show, but. You know, they decided to kill him off. And I hope he comes back as the leader of the zombie apocalypse. Like, the new uh, man that can communicate with the zombies. But, uh, I, yeah. I, so just, I totally agree with you. You're right. The elements were there. It seems like the, the things that happened were the right things to have happened to push us to that point. And yet it didn't come together somehow. And I think what you just said with Jim is right that... Um, he's a good character to point to because we don't care that he's left by the side of the road. And this is one of the weaknesses we keep talking about that. We don't know who these people are. Right. You know what they should probably do? They should probably fire all the writers and get new ones. <laughs> so I think they should just clean house so that we can, you know, we can start over next season. Yeah. That makes sense. Why right? don't we just get right. new characters too? Huh. <laughs> well, that's what's so funny about this story is that this is a, this is a hit. But, you know, the other, the positive way to look at this is to say they're aware that some of the weaknesses were script-based and that maybe this is an effort to improve a show that's already successful. Wouldn't that be shocking rather than just keep doing the same thing over and over again? That would be shocking, actually. I don't know if we're ready for that kind of nonsense. No. <laughs> I mean, even with all the problems, they're still doing something right because how many shows do you know gain viewers consistently every week? Especially and Walking Dead has been doing that. It's, what is it now, over doubling the amount of viewers that any episode of Mad Men's ever had. Like, the show oh, yeah. is huge, oh, yeah. despite all of the problems that it's having. And so I, I'm really interested to see, not just because it's a finale, but the next episode after all of this crap has come out about the writers, this whole scandal aspect of it, I can't wait to see how many people are going to watch this next episode. I'm Did gonna... any of you read the Entertainment Weekly write-up about the show? No, oh, the, the, the best cover? show. I didn't. Oh, no. Yeah, most of the fuss I saw on Twitter was that they claimed it was the best new show of the season, and so lots of people had issues with it, with calling it that. But there were a lot of good spoilers in it about like how many things are going to... And I'm not going to get into what's coming up or anything. I don't want to ruin the show. But I found it fascinating how many things that you might expect will be dealt with in the finale aren't going to be dealt with. So what are your expectations for this finale? What do you hope you learn? Or what will... What, you know, just thinking about what's coming, what do you think will leave you satisfied? Oh, I'm looking forward to a Noah Emmerich um, tour de force. I love Noah Emmerich a lot. I mean, even in his role in the Truman Show, I think it's just great. 
And so I'm really excited that even based on his appearance in the last episode, I mean, clearly a guy who's slowly unhinging. And I think this is, is very possibly going to push him over the edge. So I'm eager to see how that character plays out. This is the guy in the CDC you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So well, yeah, but, but if it's all about a character we haven't met yet, does that satisfy you as for a season? Or does that satisfy you for an episode? I'm kind of okay with it just because I'm so used to anime series that introduce a character in the last moments of a season and it suddenly changes everything. So I'm actually okay with last, last new character, last episode type of mentality. Um, but other things like how the virus spread seems to, is, seems to be addressed, or how the zombie apocalypse happened based on the promos seems to be addressed as well. Um, I'm with quite a few people in that I don't want it to be the government's fault, like Firefly. Uh, mm. <laughs> so I'd rather they avoid that somehow. Um, but other than that, I'm honestly... I think one of my pleasures with The Walking Dead, and one of the reasons I've been enjoying it so much, is that I haven't really had massive expectations for this show. Um, I just haven't been expecting it to do anything really revolutionary, just because I really like zombie stories. And I'm okay with, say, clunky dialogue every now and then, and I'm okay with poorly fleshed-out characters. That pun's never going to get tired talking about the show. So I'm I'm perfectly willing to kind of go along with this show and not have any expectations about what they're going to do. And I think that puts me in a position to enjoy this show a little bit more, less critically maybe. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> I'm curious about what the cliffhanger is going to be at the, at the end of the season. Like, you know, we find out, we'll find, well, I'm sure we'll find out a lot of information about what happened, and but... Like, I don't know what is next. I mean, like, at the end of Terriers, for instance, Terriers, like, they had that last moment where, you know, you turn left and you go straight, and there's, you know, a little bit of anticipation. I'm just not sure what, where they're going to go and have a, um, just have us, you know, a bated breath to make us wait, you know, for the next 11 months until we get a new season of the show. I kind of just want there to be a plan. I want there yeah, to be a plan. There you go. Live showrunners tell you, we have a plan. Yes. Well, yeah, so I just want the characters to come to some sort of decision as a group, or if they decide to break up, that's fine, too. You know, they each have their own plan. But I want to have them say, okay, this is what the goal is, and I know what some of the obstacles are, and then I'm excited to see how they try to carry it out next year. Totally. And I just hope it has nothing to do with Music Box, that's all. <laughs> that was a white-collar reference for those of you not following along. Um... One other thing to kind of keep in mind with this is that in the comics, the CDC, this whole so this whole visit to the CDC doesn't happen. Um, when they leave their camp, they go to this um, city um, called Woodbury, which is run by this sadistic, evil human being. Um, the governor? The governor, yes. That's what they talked about in Entertainment Weekly, and I fully expect he will at some point show up. Oh, man. If he shows up, they're going to have to find someone who's both that we can really love to hate but who is also perfectly comfortable torturing and raping people, because that's all that character does yeah. in the comics, is torture and rape. Yeah, so it would be nice, well, I don't know, I don't know if they can introduce his character. I guess we have, he hasn't cast yet, because we would know. Because those Yeah, we would know if they had cast that character. But that's why I'm worried, if they don't know what direction they're taking, how much of the comic they're keeping, I, you know, I just don't know how much they can leave us with. Because it has to be closed enough because they didn't know they were going to get a second season. This was all kind of a lark. Right. So, 
I, I don't know how much we're going to have of and next to keep us kind of anticipating. I'm actually thinking that there might not be too much of a cliffhanger. There might just be, and we will strive on to live another day, and that might be it. So. Right. Which is an interesting thing to think about. Like, I'm, I always battle with whether shows, like, do you do that? Should you plan to end, you know, have a season wrap up in itself if you don't know you're going to get picked up again? Or do you go with the story that you want to tell? Like, I'm always going to come back to this. Going to Fringe. Like, do you... Do they plan for an ending because their numbers are bad? Or do you just tell the story that you want to tell, get it out there, and if you get cancelled, it just kind of sucks? Because Walking Dead, having this small kind of self-contained six-episode season, if it does wrap up fairly neatly in this finale... I'm going to be very unimpressed. But I, but I think that's also, that's a little unfair because what you're just saying is that there are certain industrial expectations, you know, that you, you when you don't know that there's a future, you have to have some sort of closure or we end up with the Rubicon scenario. I mean, so there needs to be enough, but there also needs to be a little door open. So w- it'll be fun to see how they balance it. But they also, you know, now that they know that this is a big property... Uh, it might not even be about this finale episode. It might be about all of the ways they try to keep us interested over the summer and into the fall. Like, that'll be the other interesting element of this, is what is their promotional campaign? Mm-hmm. How do they keep us... How do they make us remember that we liked this show? That's a long time. It's so long. Um, yeah, I'm predicting that next year, Walking Dead will be the, the glee of this year, where the backlash will begin. <laughs> <laughs> when do we get the Parks and Rec... Backlash. Can I start that? There isn't <laughs> any. You know, I mentioned Terriers just a second ago, but I think Terriers did a, a decent job of that, of being able to take a, a finale and be able to, you know, tie up some end, some loose ends, get, give you some closure on uh, on the big arc of that season, but then leave a little door open for some for you know you wanting to come back, not just because the show is you know great, but also because you know you want to know what Britt and Hank are going to do with their situation. Um, and I think that yeah, I think that Terriers did a, a really good job at that, and maybe hopefully that will be something that Walking Dead can. I mean, I don't think that there should be a scene where Rick's like, "Are we gonna go left or right?" But <laughs> I think that you know that's something that they should kind of look at. That you know, that, you know, tie up everything, make sure that that if it is the last episode, that 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 that's an okay way to end it. At the same time, you do have to leave that little door open just in case for next season. Um, it's it seems. I mean, I know it seems presumptuous in order to leave something open like that because you think that you're going to get the next season, but at the same time, you have to kind of hope that that, that happens. I mean, you can't be uh, pessimistic about that kind of thing. Well, no, I'm, I'm all for optimism. Yeah. Do you, Terriers did well in its final showing, right? The, the ratings were up. I mean, do you have reason to be optimistic as a fan? I'm, I, I can't be, ever be optimistic as a fan for Terriers, I don't think, anymore. I mean, every, the, the episode right before Thanksgiving was a point two, I think. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping for the best, but at the same time, I cry on my pillow every night. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a show that deserves a second season. It deserves the, uh, to have a second chance and uh, uh, maybe a better title. Maybe, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, seem, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly telling people about the show all the time. Or when I tell people about it, they're like, oh, that show, isn't that about, you know, dogs? No, it's not about dogs. There's not even a terrier on the show. That doesn't seem right. 
Um, but yeah, I think that this is a show that deserves a second chance. It deserves a, a, a new title and some a, and some better marketing. De- better marketing for sure. Yeah. Noel, did you watch the finale? I did watch the finale. Um, like you, I really, really enjoyed it, and I really appreciated how they um, tied everything together within that episode. And I mean, I'm I'm still of the opinion. Um, Corey Barker wrote this just great piece talking about how if this is the only season Terriers get, how wonderful is this season for us? I mean, this is a nice, beautiful little treasure of a season of television for us. And I think that I'm kind of I'm kind of okay if Terriers doesn't get a second season just because this first season was so good right. that maybe in our minds we're just, a second season just couldn't possibly live up to how strong and emotional and well-plotted, because, I mean, they didn't waste anything in Terriers, which is just Absolutely. incredibly impressive. Nothing was wasted. Even that very first episode came back to have impact for this very last episode. In all sorts of right ways. So, but at the same time, I mean, I'm kind of okay if there's not a second season for this show, just because the story that they told was so well executed, and where the characters are at the end is just so fascinating and interesting that it's avenues for fan fiction, I think, that we can just start doing our own fan fictions. <laughs> um, so, no, I'm... Fiction? Yeah, but I think one thing that if Terrors does come back, I really want them to kind of rework their female characters a little bit because they were really weak. I felt sometimes. I you know I felt that way for especially Gretchen, but I thought Katie yeah. had uh, a little bit of strength to her um, this season. But you're right; every other female character on the show, for even from Gretchen to his sister to the reporter, uh, is this FX? Yeah, yeah, this is FX. So, so, so uh, is there any precedent on that network for finding female characters? Yeah, you're Katie Seagal on Sons of Anarchy. She always gets a lot of praise for her role on that show. Yeah, yeah it's true. Um, but yeah, I felt I felt like Katie uh, with her uh, her moment of weakness, her indiscretion in the middle of the season. I thought that was really good. Um, but you're right; every other female character really has. I mean, it's just service to the to the male character, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and that that was my problem was like I mean all I mean Gretchen is interesting to a degree, but she's really just there for us to kind of work through Hank's issues. It's true. And I mean I like Steph as well. I think Steph is a terrific character, but again, it's still working through Hank's issues. Mm-hmm. And um what was her name? I can't um the other one. Um Katie? Katie, Brit's uh fiance. Brit Brit's fiance. I mean you're right, Katie is significantly stronger, but at the same time, her life outside of Brit just was still in relation to Brit. I mean, she has she has the affair, so it's immediately going to impact Brit and Hank. It doesn't... We don't see really how it impacts her personally, but only as a unit to Brit, which I felt was really kind of complicated, which I felt was a little less complicated than the show really deserved to give her. Right. Um, so I think it, I think a recalibration of its female characters is in order. I was fine with the reporter lady being basically Lois Lane. I was okay with that because that was her role for that narrative, and I that I felt really worked. But for these for those three characters and to be as integral to the narrative as they were, just 
they didn't have anyone else to talk to but Hank and Britt, and that was really frustrating for me. You're right. And even when Gretchen and Gretchen and Katie got together, who did they talk about? Hank and Britt. It's like uh, the parenthood scenario. Whenever non-Bravermen people get together, all they can talk about are the Bravermans. Yep. Exactly. So I think that's one thing that if it provided that they get another a second season, then that's something I think to reconsider doing. And but that's my soapbox about that. No, it's totally cool. Um, I, and I, I, I agree with you, and I feel like that it, it would only make the show stronger to be able to come back and be able to have the opportunity to recalibrate the characters. I really feel like that. I mean, there's no reason for them to do it because the ratings were so low. I just kind of hope beyond hope that they do. That they, they, they bring it back, so they have that opportunity to kind of recalibrate the characters, give us another tightly plotted uh, thing. I think that they can do it. I mean, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. They can oh, make, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. I'm just saying, maybe our expectations will get too high. I'm, I think. I mean, unless I mean they just pull out something. That, I mean, after watching the first season of The Wire and then having to watch the second season of The Wire, and just go, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> um, then again, they made up for it in season three, so I'm okay with that. But I'm just saying. Was the finale closed enough so that if the show gets canceled, you'll have okay closure? Or was was whatever open-endedness they left for a potential second season, is that going to be soul-crushing to you if the show is not renewed for its next season? Soul-crushing is probably the wrong term. I mean, um, you know... It'd be disappointing, but I think I could live. Yeah. It's, um, you know, they, they, they kind of leave it open, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but they kind of, they leave it to a point where all the big story arcs of the season are tied up in little bows. And, um, I mean, they, they could probably bring back some of those elements in, in further seasons, but basically it's tied up. And, but there's this kind of new thread that's kind of, you know, what the fate of Brit, what's going to happen to Brit at the end of the season. And, um... I think that uh, if they turn left, it's a you know great. There's a great story, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brit, Brit on the run. But um, you know, if they go if they go straight, you know, a year later, uh, looking at the uh, uh, the world and how it's changed uh, while uh, Brit was away, I think that's also an interesting story too. I think that they, they've got compelling stuff that's lined up. But um, yeah, I, I'm not going to die if they don't get back to it. And they do set up a nice, the nice, the big, the new thread that they leave the door open for is also has a great actor attached to it. I mean, I love that guy. Yeah. I'm not going to say who because it's still a, something of a spoiler. But I really love that actor, and I think he would do really well on this show as well. It's true. And so that was my thing. It was just like, oh, oh, he would be awesome for the show's recurring villain. That's great. <laughs> So well, I hope to watch it still. I know I, I keep saying this, and I actually have tried to set up my DVR, and for some reason it seems to be blocking me from doing anything with FX. <laughs> I don't I can't explain it. I really feel like for the last three weeks I've tried to tape this show, and it keeps not showing up there. Um, that said, I, I, I expect at some point I will at least check it out, because I'm just so darn curious. So you've done your job on that. You've made me very curious. Well, that, that, as long as we can help out in that respect. Um <laughs> Yeah, Terriers is is good. Um, it's uh, I think it's they're selling it for uh, well they were for Cyber Week anyway. They're selling it for like twenty twenty five dollars on Amazon for the digital downloads. Hmm. Might be worth picking up, and you know every little bit helps, I guess. Um, so moving on from Terriers, let's talk about um, I don't know, 
I'm going to pick something random. But let's talk about community real quick. Okay. How do you guys feel about the community this week? Well, um, I'll, I'd rather hear from someone else first since I did the review for it so people can know already know kind of how I feel about it. So someone else, go I ahead. felt weird about it. Like, I made it, it creeped me out a little bit. Uh, it was a, uh, a little sentimental. Um, yep. not, ter- not in a terrible way. Like, it wasn't out of character. It was just a tonal shift for me. It just kind of it was off-putting. Um, I mean, Don Glover did a good job. Um, you know, uh, it was just... Weird to see him as a fleshed out character instead of that gag machine yeah. kind of thing. His his scene with Annie. I mean, they were good. All of his scenes were good. The scene in the hallway with Annie. The scene um, in the car with everyone at the end. But they were. It was just different. And that's not bad. You know, even in sitcoms, you're going to have character development. Your people are going to grow. You're going to do different things. But Community is just such a goofy show that it did feel a little weird. But that said, it was still good. It was great development. The episode was still funny. It still felt like an episode of Community, but just a weird, uh, right? Yeah. It was just weird. It's just I, I, uh, I mean, like it's, I keep saying, weird, not bad, weird, but weird, and it is. It's just, it was just odd. I think my reaction is just going to be unusual. I don't know. I, 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 I know enough people with issues with alcohol that the character I go around here is Shirley because I found that very moving mm-hmm. and but it, even though it was played to be kind of funny because the photos are haha funny they're actually deeply 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 sad mm-hmm. right and so I actually I really admire that in the episode that it that there was so much about it that was just and that's what he says at the end he says it makes people sad or for Shirley apparently I, I would guess a sad person uses alcohol because she's sad mm-hmm. um, so I, there, there was an interesting kind of playing around with what alcohol is in our world. And, and there was, I, I don't think there was a single representation of it here that was useful or good. Or It just made me wonder about the people behind it and how much sadness there might be in their own relationship with alcohol. So I went somewhere way too deep with a comedy. And, and I'm not saying comedy can't go deep, but it just makes my reaction kind of strange, I think. Well, I don't think it makes it strange. I mean, I think, you, I think all of this kind of brings into a focus, I mean, one of the ideas about the episode about... It is a it is a it is a melancholy episode of Community, which is something I don't think Community's done, which I think is why it feels a little weird. Um, is that it's melancholy, but at the same time, I feel like there's still that Community lesson, there's still that Community hug at the end where we've learned something, and which is still something that happens in every episode of Community. We learn something, and there's hugging and learning, which is something that hasn't been done in sitcoms for a while. It's always been no no hugging, no learning from Seinfeld. Mm. And I was okay with that tonal shift. I mean, it's it's it, I think that the character beats work better than they did in in calligraphy be, because of the fact that community stepped back from its meta self and decided to tell what felt like just a very sitcom purposeful episode where we leave slightly from our setting for the characters to kind of explore different aspects of themselves, and alcohol is a good way to do that anyway. And we just learn about these characters a little bit more. I mean, Annie's building to a big breakdown, and which is really fascinating, even from her se- from her stuff this season. She's been trying to transfer, which they mentioned kind of out of nowhere in the uh, basic rocket science episode. But, I mean, getting flustered over a pen and demanding everyone stay in the room, I mean, and then wanting a new identity, 
as well, and realizing that her life is so planned out. I think that there's this sense that Annie's trying to figure her own self out again, and this episode just furthers that thread really nicely. No, you're right. Uh, Jeff and Annie usually are the only characters that have any kind of development at all, and uh, it was just you know, awkward for me to see other characters get that kind of the same <laughs> treatment. So, um, yeah, uh, Annie, I think, is is definitely the, one of the more dynamic characters on the show. I mean, a lot of other people get ignored on that show. I mean, Abed probably the most. But, or Pierce. Yeah, or Pierce. He's, he's, he never gets anything, does he? No. Well, his mom died earlier this season. That was actually a really good episode, too. You're right, that was a good episode. That was a great episode, I thought. Um, and that, that show, I mean, Pierce is one of the, Pierce is a frustrating character, even though I really like, I think the character's funny. But I don't think he's funny in the same way that the rest of the characters are funny, because he's meant to be funny, as opposed to just being naturally funny. He's meant to be a joke, as opposed to telling jokes, essentially. Right. He's the, instead of telling the jokes, he's the butt of jokes. Right. Yeah. One other thing to get back to Karen's point about the depiction of alcoholism is I think that I've, I was actually really like that as well because it showed us all the different ways that alcohol works on people. And, I mean, I go back to the um, How I Met Your Mother and um, Matt can back me up here. Is There's this great episode in season one called The Pineapple Incident where Ted gets rip-roaring drunk and blacks out, basically, and throughout the episode, characters tell him what happened. Yep. That episode won an award from an alcohol awareness um, organization for its depiction of how the dangers of alcohol. Um, and I think that this episode of Community could do that same sort of thing as in telling us about the dangers of alcohol in, these, in this very kind of broad sort of way, but also in a way that doesn't feel super very special episode, and that no one actually said it was a very special episode of Community. And it was. And I think that's great for them to be able to do a very special episode but not tell us it is, which is them telling us it's a bottle episode. But they don't tell us when they do a very special episode, and I think there's an earnestness in that that I, I feel really works for the show. Uh, this is something that you and I were talking about last night, Noel. Do you feel like that community is the anti-Chuck Lorre uh, <laughs> right now? Because it's got character development, it's got, uh, all kind, it's got seasonal arcs, it doesn't have maybe that, that maybe that's the studio meddling in their affairs. But uh, do you feel like that this is the, that they are almost purposefully being the the anti Chuck Lorre comedy? I don't think that they're being this. I mean, judging from the language that Chuck Lorre uses in that New Yorker interview and how Dan Harmon talk, talks to people on Twitter, I don't know that they're that <laughs> different in terms of personality. <laughs> um. But I would say that, I mean, yeah, I think you're probably right. This is an anti-Chuck Lorre thing. In the large part, because Chuck Lorre likes to show us, at least, I think, especially with Two and a Half Men, I'm not necessarily with Big Bang Theory, and I haven't seen anything from Mike and Molly. But, I mean, I genuinely care about these people, and there's character arcs and character development that makes me care about them. Charlie is never going to change on Two and a Half Men, ever. Period. And that's kind of dull to me. And I don't. And Matt, maybe you can tell me if characters on Big Bang Theory are ever going to actually change beyond their romantic partners. I don't see Sheldon changing, but Sheldon's not supposed to change. No. But like Leonard changing, I don't see really happening. And he's the most dynamic character on that show. It's not no Pete. Outside, like you said, outside of romantic relationships, there is no change. That's the only character development you can talk about is in relation to someone of the opposite sex. Because now right. that 
Leonard and Penny aren't together anymore, Leonard is right back to where he was in season one. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right in positioning community as the anti-Chuck Lorre show. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> we'll have to see. I don't know yet. Um, I've watched The Big Bang Theory here and there. I, I was interested in it in the beginning, and then I tried to watch it again recently, and I just never do too well with sitcoms. So, for some reason, I don't know if it's... Somehow it was fresh at first, and now it doesn't seem to be so to me. But I still find all those characters likable. I, I I enjoy watching them. I like their friendships. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know that growth is something that I'm expecting from any of my sitcoms or real changes in the characters. I mean, obviously, all these kids in, on Community need to stay in Community College, even though the whole point of being there is to get to another college. But within the you know the conceit of having a television show and whatever else at a community college, they really can't go beyond that, can they? It's true. Well, there are local colleges that offer four-year degrees, so I mean I think that that that's been their point, and that's why they have voting classes as well <laughs> at Greendale, even though they're not near any bodies of water. Um, so I mean I think that the show can't run forever, which I think I'll be really interested to see if. Dan Harmon just goes, okay, four years, I'm done. Or, or we have the, uh, the graduate school years. Yeah. I would love a show about graduate school. I've been saying for years that there needs to be a Scrubs-esque show about graduate school. Karen, wouldn't you watch that? Sure. I'm <laughs> sure people would be bored silly. I can't imagine anybody yeah. having a who, particular... Who would take it? What network would you put that on? Where should it go? I'm sure NBC will pick it up because they don't have anything else. <laughs> I was joking with a friend the other day because she was she had gone on this crazy business trip and had you know planes, trains, and automobiles. And I'm like, I woke up this morning and I made it all the way to my desk. And then when I got to my desk, I realized my teapot was out of water, so I had to go all the way to my kitchen. And then I made it back to my desk safely and played on my computer for the rest of the day. That is not an interesting show. <laughs> And yes, folks, that is how graduate school works. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it sounds like the life. Yeah. <laughs> it might be one fun one to live. I don't think it's a fun one to watch. <laughs> well, we were talking about uh, likable characters on um, sitcoms. Let's talk about some unlikable characters in all of television. Uh, Gossip Girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gross. <laughs> what happened in Gossip Girl this week? Uh, it was the Serena show all over again this week. After um, after the events of Jenny and Vanessa and Juliet's genius, wonderful, glorious, evil scheme against her, now we have the repercussions and her being in the hospital, her now going to rehab, and how, of course, what's going on with her is affecting everyone else, but especially Dan. And it made me sad because Dan was early in the sh- early in the show one of my favorite characters. I thought he was a really relatable male character, um, and now he just seems sad because everything about him just has to do with Serena. Every decision he has to make. Here, didn't he like have career goals once upon he a did, time? He wanted to be a writer, and last year he wrote that uh, he wrote that play. He entered. Uh, to try it. Oh, what was he doing? There was that competition that he and Vanessa both entered into. He did have career aspirations, but that's kind of... School in general has fallen by the wayside for them, it seems like, this season. Last year was the first year of college, so they focused on it a lot, but this year, 
I even forgot that they were in college for the majority of the season so far. We haven't seen NYU at all. No. It's like, they, they, that's just disappeared off the map entirely. And Columbia only exists so that we can see Serena's love life or the social circuit. It's the 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 thing with Dan that that's yes, it's, I, I, I he had some aspirations, but um, I, I I was okay with the, the and I wrote about this in a comment, but I was okay with him getting back with Serena and him being the one that kind of believed in her. But I was pretty horrified that like everyone else around Serena is going to take responsibility for actions, is going to feel regret and remorse, and yet Serena somehow is going to be righteous to the end. She had an emotional affair with a professor. She tried to go away with him for a weekend, and she still wants to claim to me that she wasn't trying to get a higher grade in her class, like or that there was no impact upon her grade, or that this was acceptable behavior because she didn't actually have sex with him. I mean, this is a little bit Bill Clinton-like for me. <laughs> Serena never actually had sex. Therefore, it was completely above board somehow in her strange moral universe. And it bothers me that the show seems to be upholding it. Like, I don't know why they don't understand we hate her. That she's morally reprehensible in ways beyond. I mean, Juliet seems to be a little psycho now. And I still think she has more of a moral code than Serena does. Yep. So th- I think I, it's just become Serena is the main character, and so there's always going to be this focus on her, and she's never going to learn. She's never she's she's a Chuck Lorre character. She's never going to change. She's never going to learn any lessons. And but so she doesn't we are have just supposed to necessarily. To. I don't mind hating Serena. I I it bothers me that nobody else sees it either. Oh, you mean like character wise, like on the show? Yeah. Why is everyone else? I mean, the the point of of, of Vanessa and Jenny and Juliet being involved in all of this is that they're all kind of like, how does no one else get it? Why does nobody see? Please see. And they go a little far, yes, to get people to see. But people still refuse to see. And and I'm I'm not kind of trying to critique this fake world. I'm actually trying to say the people at the CW behind the show seem to not understand why we watch this show. That's the part that concerns me. I watch the show for excess and silliness and whatever, but I don't want Serena to be made a hero. No, I don't want God, anyone no. on this show to be made a hero. None of these people are who I'm going to look to for my values. No. They seem to try and touch on a little bit why those close to her don't seem to notice or mind that she's a terrible person in that that's just the way it is. Blair had, like, that, had that conversation where she was saying, I know Serena better than you. This is how she's always been. It seems like everyone has just come to accept that Serena's a terrible person. They just continue to overlook it. On one hand, if you wanted to really try and say something positive, you could say, that's real friendship, man. You should like and stick by your friends no matter how god-awful they are. But I just don't buy it. Well, and with Lily, too. Like, even... Poor Lily... This episode has to again be reminded that she was a terrible mother. And I don't mind Lily taking responsibility for the fact that her daughter is awful. But I bet you at some point what's going to happen here is she's going to be like, oh, I was so wrong to assume the worst of my daughter who had an affair with the professor. Somehow that is just never going, she's never going to be held accountable for that. And she's going to somehow get back into Columbia and become freaking valedictorian, even though she's never done a lick of work the entire time. They, I just, it, some things about Serena really bother me. 
and, and actually lessen my enjoyment of the show. So again, it, it, you know, I could go on and on about characters and their moral worldview. What I'm actually saying is as a viewer, anytime they get too up in Serena being all wonderful, I actually want to turn the show off. Yeah. Yeah, because we had talked about this. Like, it's not, it wasn't a bad episode. You know, like you said, there were some pacing issues, but like overall, it was a it was a good episode. I just can't like it that much because it was so Serena centric. Yeah, so I just wish they, you know, the writers just, I mean, they can go somewhere awesome with her. Like, you know, I, I the whole nine hundred two one zero people began to hate Brenda thing from like four hundred years ago was is amusing to me because I like when people begin to hate main characters as long as the writers pick up on it and play with it. And the writers there for all kinds of reasons kind of made Brenda bad. But that made the show fun. Like, it actually, like, improved the show. So let's make Serena, like, let, let's go ahead and uh, acknowledge that she's not a saint. Let's call it Spade Serena's a bad yeah. Seriously. Just, Blair seems to have no problem accepting that she's kind of a bad person. She embraces and, it a lot of the time. So, I mean, and, and she and Chuck, well, yeah, they both, they, they both kind of say, oh, this is just who we are and whatever. But they're very honest about it. Serena continually tries to justify all of her choices. So, I don't know. It, it's, it, it was weird for me with this episode because I actually was like, oh, you know, it was, yeah, exactly. It, w- it was not a bad episode and yet I left really annoyed. Yeah. So, that to me seems like a problem. No, I agree. And so now we'll, we'll see how, and once again, her, her playing somewhat of a martyr for herself, now her decision to go to rehab, we'll see how that changes her. We'll see how that affects anyone yeah. else's you know, views on her. And of course, everyone now, they're going to say, oh, well, she's going to rehab. Good for her. She's really trying. She's so great. But it can't last. She, there's no way that Serena will be able to change. And so I want to know, once she falls off the horse again after this stint in rehab, what that's going to do for people. I just want Vanessa to come back and be like, I told you so. I told all of you guys. Okay. She's awful. And are, are you thinking she's actually going to be in rehab for more than a day and a half? I think she's going to be out of there so fast. There will be no group session where Serena starts to cry and realizes she's a terrible person. There's going to be none of that. She's going to be out of there, and everyone else is going to feel bad that they put her there. And that will be it. One thing Gossip Girl does not do well is when it touches upon something that's actually interesting, it moves so fast that it never even pauses to think about, oh, this could be an interesting you know, place to sit for a second yeah. and let it play out. They move too fast, and they don't move in a too fast in a good way. They move too fast, and that they miss all of the stuff that has potential in the series. And most of the time, it's because they're trying to rush through and get to to Serena stuff. Yeah. So we'll see, but yeah, I I, I will we'll, we'll we'll see where this this continues to play out. But that the, the turn making Juliet a little psycho disappointed me. I actually really liked her. I liked her desperation. Um, but I didn't need her to be trying to kill someone. Yeah. And I sure as heck hated the change with Ben, who was the whole uh, motivation for this anyway. Right. Like, now all of a sudden he grew a conscience. And still, like you, again, something we talked about earlier, if what he did isn't the most horrendous and terrible thing in the entire world, it's going to, it's going to put a whole damper on this entire season for yeah. why he was in jail and why he's trying to get back at Serena. I don't understand they, why all of a sudden he's had this change of heart. What they could have done was have him go even meaner, like really have him threaten his sister, like go someplace ugly and let, you know, Juliet be at, I mean, Juliet, that way Juliet could do some pretty bad things, 
but at least we could understand it within the character that we've gotten to know, the character that actually did care about Nate, and, you know, all these other things about her that are human. Instead of making her just go psycho, which immediately puts her outside the realm of possibility, and just justifies all kinds of laws of logic. And, you know, I, and I say all these things, and I'm like, it's Gossip Girl, it's Gossip Girl. You, you know, it doesn't... I'm being a little too serious, but I, what I'm trying to say is that when, when the show violates the things that make me enjoy it, I feel like there's a problem, and it's, it's worthwhile to explore that further. Because I want to get to the end of Gossip Girl and be like, oh, that was fun. Yes. And they're, they're doing things that make it much less fun. We shall see. The, the ways that they will annoy. And I'm sure there will be plenty of ways they annoy me next week. So, oh, so to be continued. Uh, speaking of uh, one Chuck on one show, let's move to the other Monday Chuck. Uh, he was also... Um, Kind of ridiculous. Outside of Timothy Dalton, I think this week, I, I, this was probably one of my least favorite episodes of the season. No, you watched it too, right? Yes. What did you think of it? Um, yeah, I was pretty disappointed with it outside of um, Timothy Dalton, who I clearly think is an Emmy nomination for Best Actor in a Comedy, a uh, Best Guest Actor in a Comedy this season. Definitely. His charade for a movie title, I don't even know what it was. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because it was hilarious. Um, but yeah, no, the episode was just kind of a mishmash, and it was too all over the place. I felt because you set us up for this big action sequence in the Buy More, mm-hmm. and it just kind of collapses into this what should have been a really high-strung, dangerous feeling dinner that never materialized. Right. And I think one of the problems with it was is that when we first sit down with them at dinner, it's suddenly handheld cameras and skewed what angles. What was that? Yeah, like, it was only on um, whenever... It was on that scene. It was, like, whenever it was on uh, Timothy Dalton, that was, they decided that they were going to do handheld cameras. I guess because they read in a textbook somewhere that, that we use handheld cameras to uh, represent psychotic uh, looks and stuff like that. I'm not sure why they decided to, to do that, but, um, yeah, it was... Off, offsetting, and usually Chuck is very good about their uh, their sit down scenes, like their dinner scenes and stuff like that. And that, yeah, there was no tension there. Like I, I expected a lot more from that scene. I mean, the comedy was great, but you know, none of yeah, the, was, none of the other stuff was there. There was no no tension there, and then it felt like we just kind of forgot about Casey and Morgan and Jester at the buy more as well. Right. So it was just like, oh, I guess everyone's okay at the buy more with the diehard references going crazy. Because some of the diehard references were there. There was the gun on the shoulder. There was the black hacker. Right. Uh, right. I, <laughs> was, I'm curious, yeah. like, uh, how did, if Morgan couldn't reach the gun on his back, how did he get it there in the first place? Exactly. So it was just this weird mishmash of an episode. Um, but I think, for me, the biggest disappointment with this episode was that they've set up they set up a nice Ellie story with her finding um, Orion's car mm-hmm. and finding that suitcase. And her trying to work through all of this was really interesting. And then it just turns out so that Chuck can get the intersect back. What? Exactly. Horrible. Especially for a character that has been abused as much as Ellie has. Right. She finally gets some meat and she can't, and, and they take it right away from her. And then right. they give the sandwich to Chuck. I mean, it's you're right. And uh, I mean, I they knew that, were gonna, that that the intersect wasn't going to be gone forever, and I knew that it was going to come back soon. But 
it seemed like ham-handed how they kind of... I'm using a lot of neat references. It, but uh, it's, uh, it's really ham-handed how they totally gave him the, the, the Intersect back just, just like that. You just, it, I'm back, guys. I know Kung Fu again. Right. And I think, that, I think it just... I think that's one of the things that Chuck has shown that it can't really do well is play out its arcs mm-hmm. in satisfactory manner since really season two. Um, and when it does set up arcs, it just decides... It gets bored, essentially, with its arcs. Kind of like the League gets bored with its stories. Right. Um, Chuck just kind of gets bored with not having its main character be a super spy, even though he's so much more interesting when he's not a super spy. That's true. I so... Mean, and think about the last time that he actually flashed on information instead of flashing on four abilities. Right. There's a whole section of the intersect that's not being used anymore, and they, they just got bored with that too. Uh, yeah, it, it, you're right. It's it's it, you know, it seems like that they are able to introduce really interesting concepts, but then like they don't know what to do with it after they finally introduce the concept, and they're like, oh, let's just get rid of it real quick, and let's just put it off to the side, and we'll find something else to do. Right. And I mean, there are better ways to treat your MacGuffin. I mean, I acknowledge the suitcase is total MacGuffin, but I mean, we spent three episodes with that MacGuffin, mm-hmm. only to have it be so Trek can get the intersect back, and that's really frustrating for me. I mean, we did the entire Bymore group trying to open it with Devin, and that was great. I thought it was really funny because awesome interacting with anyone is awesome. It's, it's true. <laughs> It's absolutely true, and uh, I even in the, the success of that of that sequence where he you know got everybody and there was just everybody was just made me so uncomfortable. I mean, him coming down when Awesome comes downstairs with Big Mike and talking about you know, digging stuff out I, that grossed me out, and that's good for them. Like they need some kind of body reaction every once in a while because otherwise because the only other body reaction I get from Chuck usually is rolling my eyes. So. It's good for every once in a while to build that kind of tension with them, and, and Awesome does need to interact with people. And I so I am so sad for Ellie because Sarah Lancaster is not a bad actress, even though she gets blamed for a lot of uh, Everwood's troubles. But she is uh, a really she can do good stuff, and seeing her mom again on Thanksgiving should have been a bigger scene. And yeah, and that just that fell apart. Yeah. It's terrible. So, so yeah, was, Timothy Dalton's the only reason why you should be watching Chuck right now is uh, because I, he's the big bad. I agree with that. I think Timothy Dalton is the only reason to tune in now, especially, yeah, um, that's all I think needs to be said is that they should rename Chuck Frost and spin off Timothy Dalton into his own spy show. It's such a shame when good characters get trapped on awful television shows. <laughs> That's the thing, though. It could be so much better. It's not awful, but it's it's just... Because last week and the week before were great episodes, like especially for Chuck. And uh, this week just fell on its face. Just all that capital that I built with me... Like, I, I've been singing its praises on, on the site for two weeks, where I was like, the show's finally starting to get its stride in the season. Uh, the, the last few episodes are just like season three, where it took a while to get started. But here we are. We're finally going to get started. And then Thanksgiving episode is... Now the new is like the honeymooners episode from last season. Maybe not that bad. Nothing's that bad. There yeah, nothing's that bad. Calling that are better than that show. But that wow, episode, Ooh, wow. No, it's, it's that show. That episode's terrible. But um, yeah, this was this was a total disappointment. Well, you know what wasn't a disappointment? What wasn't a disappointment? Top Chef All Stars first episode was not a disappointment. Woo! How was that for a segue? Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. No, it was. I mean, I think that. One of the beauties, I think, of 
Top Chef is, and especially this season though, coming in, is that I think this is the season where anyone could step in and just start watching, even though there's all this history supposedly built in. If you came, this would be the season that if you haven't watched this show before ever, you need to be watching this season. Yeah, I think that the, the neat thing about this season is that whatever your level of past experience, mm-hmm. you're going to respond to the show differently, and I think that's kind of okay. Yeah. Like, like, like the people that have watched the entire time are going to have their own particular favorites. I think there's going to be some more strong advocacy for particular character or well, for particular chefs. They're not characters; they're actual people. Um, <laughs> well, they're edited like characters, so maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's going to be camps, and and so by but I, I'm hoping that's kind of the fun is that you know whoever you your team so and so, you know that that that'll make it a little more fun for the for the audience. But even if you don't know any of them. You're going to get to know them all through this series, and so I, I, I like that this particular season is going to be really open to letting the, the longtime watchers have fun in an entirely unique way, and the new people getting to see some really excellent chefs and some really strong personalities. I mean, one of the things that reality lives and dies by is by the makeup of the cast, and here they got to hand pick. Yeah, and they didn't just pick because they wanted you know twelve jerks who would all yell at each other. They actually tried to find balance. Like, we need to have a couple of the people that were actual fan favorites have, you know, good personalities and aren't, and aren't going to be yelling at everyone all the time. Like, we're going to have some people that are more controversial, but they really did try to not just set it up for excessive drama, but to look at talent, to look at personality, to look at um, the people that really had a chance before maybe could use another moment of redemption. Like, I just... The, the, the casting here... Is put a lot of potential behind this this season, right? And, and as long as the people that actually run the show just get out of the way of the contestants and just let them do their work instead of the nonsense we had last season. I mean, this is Top Chef's redemption too, not just individual chefs, but this is their chance to make up for DC, which was right. terrible. Right. And I, I'm going to get back to the producer thing. I kind of feel like this elimination was producer influence just a little bit, but. Um, uh, going back, I mean, I think going back to our idea about this being a perfect intro season, I mean, for Nick and Matt, I mean, the show structure... Have you guys ever seen an episode before, or...? Nope. Yeah, I've seen a few. Okay. I'm a big um, Pat well, fan. Yeah, well, who isn't? Yeah. Um, but um, how, how it works is that there's normally a quick-fire challenge, which is normally they have 30 minutes to an hour to make a quick dish, basically, out of some sort of challenge ingredient. And then they have a big elimination challenge, which is a larger meal. They have more time to prepare and everything. And this episode just solidified everything that this season is going to be about, I think, within one episode. And I think that was great. The quick fire challenge um, had them pair up to their seasons and create a dish that dealt with their particular city best, which I thought was a nice way of reminding us about who these characters these characters, who these people were and what their seasons were like. And what their relationships were with other chefs. Exactly. So, I mean, when we when Casey and Dale L, I should specify, since there are two Dales this right. season. Um, since Casey and Dale L were in season three, they made a fish dish and they did Miami and, I mean, it all just really worked. And it reminded us that this was their relationship because they got along really well together. And then season four reminds us how crazy Richard Blaze is and how really smart... Crazy in a good way. Crazy in a good way. And how smart that group was as well and how on the ball they were when they created dishes. 
So it, it reintroduced us to them, but I think the best thing about it was that elimination challenge was brilliant on a plate, just from a conceptual point, because normally the elimination challenge is just something big and bold, but here they had to recreate their dish from that got them eliminated last whenever they were on last season, last time. So they got faced with their nightmare that got them sent home. And that's just psychological war- warfare on the producer's part. Um, also, kind of awesome, because if I got kicked off a show for making a mistake or several mistakes or whatever, I bet you all I would think about for months is, I wish I would have, I wish I would have, I wish I would have. And even though in my life I'm not a fan of what-ifs, in reality show world, I think what-ifs could be really useful. <laughs> and here we got a chance to see who had really made, taken the criticism, applied it, and overcome it, and who had rejected the criticism. Um, you know, and that's always tricky, because sometimes, you know, criti- criticism isn't always correct. Right. But to win a game show, <laughs> you know, you kind of, <laughs> yes. you need to take it and, and acknowledge the judges and whatever else. And it was fascinating to see, like, the psychological interplay there of, of how people responded to the challenge. It wasn't, you know, it was, yes, facing a nightmare, but also, how am I going to choose to make a really awful situation work for me now? Right, and I mean, I think this gets to where the elimination and the top four and everything come in, because that top four, I can, I feel very confident in saying that Spike, Jamie, Richard, and Angelo are the four to beat. Jamie, ugh, Spike, Spike won't, Spike. I, I, even though he had a good showing this week. Uh, well, well, it'll be nice to see. I went to Spike's restaurant in D.C., and I, I think Spike knows who he is, mm-hmm. and he's not gourmand. That's not what he wants to be. I, and I don't know enough about his training, but, I mean, the guy wanted to open a greasy burger joint with awesome milkshakes, and so that's what he did, and that's cool. Like, he just – he is who he is, and that's why he's such a great personality. I don't think anyone expects him to win, and, and maybe I will be surprised by what he's able to pull out. But one of the things with Top Chef that tends to be interesting is that people with some really impressive training do tend to achieve in particular ways. Right. Um, and I, and I, I, I kind of like that I kinda, because we get to see that they – one of the things I've read about with chef school is that you aren't just learning how to do things. You're learning how to fix things you F up. And so when something goes wrong, what are the steps you take to fix it? And so the people that have that kind of training, I think, do usually do a better job of it, even under pressure. Maybe that's why they do better. It's not necessarily that school makes everything. It's that learning how to fix problems is a really essential skill for a chef, especially not, you know a chef who's doing regular food, not not pastries. Pastries, I think, it's hard to fix mistakes. But right. um, and so that's you know that those are the people I really love to watch them problem solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something we, I also enjoy about Project Runway. So this might just be what I enjoy about reality TV. We just have a really lot of people at the top of their game. Um, I do, yeah, Angelo, Richard, um, who else? I don't know. Jamie, her attitude is so bad, but yeah, I think she's strong. Oh, Jennifer. I think Jennifer's going to make another play. She didn't come out strong out of the gate here, but Jennifer has also has a lot of experience, and she's the girl that never smiles, and <laughs> I'm, n- I'm never going to like her and want to sit down and have a beer with her, but I sure want to see her cook. Right, so. yeah. So I think I, I mean, the top four for this episode and Jen, I, Jennifer, I think, are the five to keep an eye on. I think Spike, despite like his mentality about wanting to do greasy burgers and um, milkshakes, 
I still think that the fact that he hid that scallop to make a point, basically, was really smart. Oh, yeah, he's clever. And I think Bourdain identifying him as the cleverest motherfucker in the competition, to quote Bourdain, is dead on. And I think that's why Spike's going to do really well in this season, is that he's going to out, for the first time, I think, on Top Chef, we're going to see someone out think as opposed to out cook. Oh, that would be fun, yeah. It would be really interesting to see when this is a show that's really based on how well you cook. How well can you outthink and maybe play to your strengths more than anything else? Yeah. Would be really interesting to see. And I think Spike, more than anyone, is really the guy to do that. And I think Angelo and Richard are probably the two that are close, probably going to win, since they should have won their seasons anyway, but just have horrible finales. Yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll see too. I'm interested to see their personalities because one of the things I love so much about Top Chef Masters, not All Stars Masters, the one where they have really trained chefs right. come in, is that there's this camaraderie. Yes. And Angelo has shown that he really likes the camaraderie aspect of cooking. I mean, people people have their own ideas about him. I'm a fan, so I I think he's genuinely interested. So I'm hoping we'll get to see some of that here. Um, some of these you know excellent chefs also kind of show us how they can enjoy working with each other. As opposed to some, I mean, there, there will be people who would be nasty. We're going to have problems with Marcel. We're going to have problems with um, the other Dale, who um, I like the other Dale. Um, but, you know, there, there's, there's some firebrands in there. So we'll see issues. We'll see issues with Jamie. So we'll have drama. We'll have plenty of it. But I also think we have the potential to have some really great people having fun cooking with each other. Right. Not at all. It's all here, Noel. So I'm excited. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But the first episode definitely showed Top Chef returning true to form. Just like Runway had a great season to make up for some terrible past seasons, my reality shows seem to be coming back to the fold, understanding what about them is good, and getting rid of some of the nonsense. So I'm, I'm going to keep positive and hope this continues. I'm going to leave that what Karen said. I'm fine. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. That's uh, the podcast this week. Um, does anybody have anything else to add? Um, hire Nick and Matt to ride on The Walking Dead on a freelance basis? There you go. Uh, I would be okay with that. Yeah, I'd be alright with that. That'd be kind of <laughs> oh, Frank so Darabont, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> if you got through all the insults the that we threw your way in the beginning and still listening after an hour, yes. Well, he wanted to get to Chuck. I hear Frank Darabont's a really big Chuck fan. so he Nobody's a to... Chuck fan. Okay. So uh, that's it for Monsters of Television. Uh, thanks for uh, listening, and uh, see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.